Welcome to the station of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neal. I'm Treacherous Trista. And we're joined by Emmy-winning supervising sound editor Trevor Gates. It's very cool to have you here. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, Lots of stuff currently, the haunting of Bly Manor, but all kinds of cool stuff we'll talk about. Cool. All right. Let's get into it. First of all, I'd like to ask, because I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, what exactly is, how would you describe or define uh, the supervising sound editor? Uh, So I am basically the creative director for the sound that you experience in either a movie or uh, a TV show. Um, So, uh, and my responsibility is for everything that you hear except for the music. So all the voices, all the background sounds, all the sound effects, things that are subjective, things that sound real, uh, footsteps, glasses clinking, anything that you hear, I'm responsible for. With a, I have a team of people that I work with that are de- um, designated different categories of, uh, uh, or layers of sound, and it's my job to interface with the filmmaker um, and help realize their dream uh, or their vision uh, uh, through the sonic experience uh, of the film or, or TV show. I think that's something that's really overlooked in, in movies uh, because I think if it's done well, you don't, in a lot of ways, you don't notice it. Right. And if it's done bad, you can notice it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's uh, all guts, no glory, usually, you know, um, uh, it is a huge part um, of the experience of movies and TV. And I think m- most of the sound community, uh, you know, are men and women who uh, love to do art and they, you know, want to be able to express themselves, uh, interface with good people. Um, but um, it's kind of usually in the background a little bit. And, you know, usually we're all right uh, with that. So. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you feel it's underappreciated? I mean, I get, you know, I've had a pretty interesting trajectory or a good trajectory the last uh, couple of years. Um, I've been doing sound for film and TV for maybe, you know, nine years, you know, uh, about a decade. And the last two or three years definitely had a, a, a very interesting trajectory. And, you know, there's been some notoriety and there's been some appreciation. And um, I feel, I feel like, you know, I've experienced some appreciation that, you know, some people haven't. And so I feel lucky for that. I have a couple of Emmys and a couple of uh, Grammy participation awards for projects that I've been involved with. And so, you know, I feel loved um, and that's good, um, but it's not why I do it. So, yeah. Well, along those lines, uh, like what interested you about that and how did you, you know, I don't think it's uh, maybe a lot of people think like, how, how would you get involved in this end of uh, movie making? Well, you know, how you, one would get involved is you kind of got to just jump in. You got to learn the, the trade and then you have to meet people and build relationships and the groups of people who end up doing projects at this level, the group is pretty tight. Um, it's a small circle as it can be in, in any entertainment uh, uh, or part of the entertainment business. Um, so, you know, for those who want to do this, you have to learn, you know, learn the trade, get the skills, and then really dedicate yourself to being involved with people to create the opportunities for you to get, you know, um, where you want to go. And for me, um, I started, I wanted to be a music producer. I moved to Los Angeles in 2007, um, and after a 10-year uh, retail career after, um, after high school and uh, simultaneously uh, making music in my living room or my bedroom, in the, my 10-year retail career, I was basically a sales manager for a, a, a computer retailer. I was like, this is great. This has taught me a lot of things about, you know, managing people and learning processes and um, that company went out of business and I took it as an opportunity to follow a dream. And so I said, let's just do this for real and let's move to LA. Let's go back to school. I went to the Art Institute of, of Los Angeles um, in Santa Monica. I got a bachelor's degree in audio production, which um, taught me 
all facets of sound from location sound to um, studio recording, post-production sound, acoustic design. Um, and so I, I, I got a degree. I worked as um, an engineer uh, for an R&B producer for a couple of years. And I was feeling a little frustrated about kind of where my trajectory was and kind of what the how lucrative the music business wasn't what, uh, at the time or still is or whatever. Um, and I wanted to be creative and I wanted to be, but I wanted to be a thriving artist and not a starving artist um, as, as we all do. Um, and while I was thinking these things, somebody called me um, a career advisor that I had at the art Institute and said, Hey Trevor, I know you're doing your thing, but I have this opportunity at this small post-production facility in Culver City, and uh, they are looking for hungry new talent. You know, what do you think? And I said, let's do it. You know, let me let me try it out. And so that was the moment where I pivoted and I, you know, started digging into the post-production sound world. And it turned out it fed my creative soul just as much as music. And so I haven't looked back, you know, since that point. And you know, it's, it's been building uh, since that day. Uh, Tris, do you have a question? Um, so you have this background in music. I'm wondering who some of your favorite musical artists are. Oh, yeah. Well, I am uh, have always been a hip-hop kid. Um, and it, the, the, the group that I've followed since I was, you know, 15 years old is OutKast. And, you know, OutKast and all of the... Dungeon Family music has been uh, a huge part uh, of my life. Um, I can say things controversial, like I liked Drake, you know, um, for a period of time. Uh, I was a big R&B guy, so I, you know, I liked this. You know, uh, I listened to Genuine a lot during uh, the uh, the 2000s. I was a, a really big fan of, of Timbaland and his production, um, and. Um, it's changed a little bit in the in the recent years, but that's that's kind of my short answer for who has influenced me. Definitely, definitely, the hip hop world has has been a, a big piece of my life. Yeah. Do you have music out there that people could listen to? Not, no, nothing, nothing. I mean, I do have um, things that I've basically put in a safe space without always thinking about putting out at one point in time, but I've never published it and it's fine to be where it is. It's for, it's for friends and, and family who are interested. Maybe one day it'll, it'll find its way onto the interwebs, but right now I think is okay for me to focus, keep focusing on this. Yeah. So uh, you have the, I don't know, trophy. I don't know what the right word is, but uh, for, for the haunting of uh, Hill House behind you, I assume that led into working on Bly Manor. Uh, well, this was the, the, well, are you saying that, are you asking if that gave me the opportunity to work on Bly Manor because right. of the win? Well, just because you, cause you worked on Hill House. Yeah, well, my the relationship actually goes a little bit further back um, with Mike Flanagan, the, the, the film director. Um, and maybe four or five years ago, our first movie together was Ouija Origin of Evil, which was a really fun uh, uh, movie to work on with Mike. And he liked my work. He liked the way that I communicated. We, re- we, we vibed really well. And so he asked me back for his next movie, which was Gerald's Game, which was a, a Netflix uh, yeah, adaptation. That's a really good movie. Yeah, not bad. Not Mike Flanagan, I love his work. And I, you know, I, it's part of the relationship. I, you know, we love each other. I like his vision. He likes mine. Very lucky to be, be able to find people to work with that you get along with and you share visions. So uh, after Gerald's game, you know, he started, um, you know, he let us know that he was working on a big thing called the Haunting of Hill House. And then when the Haunting of Hill House came around, we did that. Last year we did uh, Dr. Sleep, which was the, um, uh, the, a sequel to The Shining, um, written by Stephen King. And then we just did Blind Manor. So, we, you know, Mike has kept the same core group, me and my team, um, Jonathan Wales, mixing um, through all these projects, the Newton Brothers for, for music, um, Brett Snacky Pierce uh, is uh, the music editor. He's really kept the same people you know, as we've been uh, growing together. And I feel uh, very grateful for that. And, and it's important to keep people around that you trust. Um, yes, yeah, it when I mentioned earlier, if, if you thought it was underappreciated, but I would think this is clearly someone who does appreciate uh, yeah. the work. 
Yeah, I mean, Mike appreciates the work. Um, you know, I've worked with Jordan Peele on both of his mm-hmm. uh, movies. He liked the work that I did on Get Out, so he called me back for um, um, for us. Um, he was appreciative of uh, of my work. Um, I did Atlanta season two with Donald Glover and Hiro Mirai, and they called me back for a little movie called um, Guava Island. And also, uh, Hiro and Donald called me up to do some sound effects on the This Is America uh, video. And so um, the best appreciation that, that, that I can get is the relationships that I have and, you know, uh, appreciation from my clients and the, 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 the continued uh, relationships. Yeah. That great music video, too, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you work with uh, people like Mike Flan, I guess it depends on the person, but are are they uh, hands-on, like what they want you to do uh, sound-wise, or do they, you know, let you uh, uh, figure out for yourself? Yeah, yeah. Everybody has a different way to communicate what what they want. Um, some um, some filmmakers are, you know, micromanagers, and some are not. And um, you know. I've done so much with Mike Flanagan that he kind of just puts something in front of me and like, just lets me try things out. And he trusts me that if it's not right, then I can fix it when, when the time comes. Um, Jordan Peele often communicates in feelings. So like in the beginning of us, he's like, I want you to, uh, I want to feel the, you know, through the boardwalk scene where the little girl is walking through um, uh, the Santa Cruz boardwalk down into the vision quest. He says, I want you to have the feeling of dread, but I don't want to know why. You know, he didn't say, I want these sounds here and these sounds here and these sounds. He wants the feeling. Um, in Get Out, he, I asked him, how, you know, what's, how did he want, um, you know, the, what's the sound of the sunken place when Chris falls into the abyss of, of his mind? And he said, well, you know, the feeling that you have when you, lay back into a, a, a full bathtub and the claustrophobia and the panic that you might have, you know, that's what I want to feel. So um, that's how he communicates. Um, and so, uh, you know, part of my job is through the relationships kind of interpreting what the vision is through the individuality of the, of the filmmaker. Interesting on us specifically. Um, since there's like two different worlds in the movie, one's like, you know, more reality and one's more fantastical, but at the same time, there's like a, a duality between the two. So do you try yeah. to, do you have to have like a similarity in the sounds between the two, even though you want them different? Yeah. Well, Jordan and I actually talked a lot about duality uh, during us. And so we did some, some overt sound uh, duality uh, functions or, or, or concepts um, and then we did some covert uh, sound concept du- uh, of duality in the movie. And I'll just give you a couple of um, examples. One of the more prominent that I think is prominent, but, you know, maybe isn't so prominent there uh, is a duality between the underpass and the, and the boardwalk. And at the end of the movie, there's an intercut sequence where the two girls are kind of walking in the same direction. They're following and following an instinct or a call from something or someone. Um, and there's the sound of the whack-a-mole um, uh, machine. And then there's the sound of the escalator going up. And we intertwined the, the rhythm of those two sounds to move in between the inner cuts, which, you know, they basically started independent. And then when, when we started uh, intercutting, they kind of merged into the same, the same sound almost. Not the same sound, but the same pattern. So they would move from one to the other, which is pretty cool. And then we did like weird stuff, like when the, when the, um, this was actually uh, uh, an idea of Doug Hemphill, one of the re-recording mixers. Um, he, he, we were mixing, and he's like, you know what would be cool, Trevor, is if we put the sound of the whack-a-mole into the breaking down of the boat engine. And I'm like, all right, let's – so we did that, you know? Yeah. Um, and it worked. Uh, and, and, and I think stuff like that, even if the viewer isn't aware – like yeah. it works in their mind, you know, they're, yeah. they, they know it, even if they don't know it, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, making giving the feelings without drawing too much attention is really. And then we we used um, some ideas about like the juxtaposition uh, juxtaposition of the duality, like um, when uh, the younger, uh, well, when the daughter Zora and her doppelganger are on are on both sides of the car, and they're kind of having a a, a standoff, and they're looking at each other through the windows. Um, we had two cricket sounds that were running, and this is very subtle, but there are two crickets. There was a close cricket and then a really far cricket that um, has a lot of air and a lot of space on it. And when the doppelganger uh, drops down and you don't see her anymore, we took away the far cricket, but not the close cricket. The, cr- the, the close cricket was still there, but the far cricket you know, dropped out. And so the air of the space just went really narrow. It was like, you know, kind of like sucked all the air out of the, so, you know, interesting juxtapositions there within the duality. When you get the the sound of a cricket, is that something you get somewhere or do you actually like uh, record a cricket? Yeah, I love crickets. I love the sound of some, on some shows. I don't know if you you can. Uh, I don't notice that when I'm doing the show, but people have told me you can hear the crickets because I'm in my basement and when I have cave crickets down here. So yeah, in some of the podcasts you can hear the crickets. There's something really interesting to me about a single cricket. You know, like um, especially in horror movies because there's a. Um, I talk a lot about uh, the isolation of sound in in horror and thrillers, and it's like especially in the, the 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 day and age where we're watching a lot of movies at home and you know TV shows at home versus the theater the theater is a very controlled environment so the term quiet comes from the lack of sound like you can you know because you are in a tuned room and a tuned you know tuned environment and a tuned track and you know exactly where the loud and where the quiets are but when you're at home somebody can be on a laptop or be on um, you know, a sound system that could be either up or down, you know. And so perceived silence is a really interesting uh, thought that um, where you isolate a sound very minimally so somebody can focus on it, give them the, the idea of something minimal, and then you can get really loud because they're focused on something. So Ouija Origin of Evil, I put a clock that we never saw a clock, but I put a grandfather clock in in one of the rooms. And when I was showing Mike Flanagan, he's like, that clock is pretty pretty prominent. And I was like, I slowed it down to just over one second per tick. So you kind of like leaned into it a little bit. And he was, and after I played the scene for him, he was like, well, I guess I got to go shoot an insert of a, of a grandfather <laughs> clock. And he never did, but he, you know, that was his validation that, that he liked it. So crickets do some of the similar thing. Like I like a single cricket in a room and, you know, some, uh, you can, you know, lots of crickets sound the same, but I focus on the space of the cricket a lot. Like where is that cricket in the room? Is it outside or is it inside? You know, is it, you know, what's the pace of the cricket? And so I'll often find myself, slowing down a cricket or pitching down a cricket so that it meets like a, like a feeling and you know who knows uh, uh, you know what pitch will give you what emotion but i listen to the you know the creative voice inside of me about you know what it's telling me and so you know, i'll often find myself pitching crickets down or slowing it down so you get you know kind of like a pace in the scene while somebody's talking or while somebody's waiting um, and in the first season of The Haunting of Hill House, I did something different where I would slow it down progressively to the end of the scene. So it's kind of like, you know, things were a little off kilter and you didn't know why. And as soon as you realize, you're like, what is going on with that cricket? There's a ghost. So we didn't do that in, in Bly Manor because we, we figured out that it was kind of tipping the hat a little too much in the composition of this series. So uh, I tried it uh, and then it just didn't work. So mm-hmm. that's fine. Interesting. Uh, Tristan, you have a question? Are you a horror fan outside of your own work? I do uh, uh, love horror films. Um, I'll, I'll admit that there are, there are better horror fans than, than, than I am. You know, there are people who are uh, much more loyal um, to, to the genre of, of horror than I am. But I am a true believer in, in, in storytelling and, and in filmmaking. And so, um, I've learned to really, really appreciate um, 
classic horror. Um, and so while I won't pretend to be the, the biggest fanatic, um, I am a fan and uh, I think it's really important to be able to, to learn how to tell stories, you know, from those classic um, filmmaking experiences. What are some of the classic ones you like? You know, I was just talking about this with somebody uh, the other day about um, the original Carrie. Um, and I was talking about um, some of like Jordan Peele's uh, films. Like you go most of the movie, you're like, what is going on? Like, I don't, like, I don't know what's happening and it makes me feel weird. And I don't know until the very end. Um, and and Carrie was one of the, the first ones that, that, that I, uh, really appreciate um, that feeling of dread. Um, I didn't care so much for the remake. I'm sorry if I'm offending somebody because I, I agree I, with you. But yeah, I think that they didn't embrace that mystery. I think they tried to explain things too early, and it just it didn't work for me. So yeah. even in um, the trailer, I think the trailer tells the whole story. In, yeah, in yeah, two minutes. yeah. Don't explain it. Don't show me how to feel. I mean, don't tell me how to feel. Show me how to feel. That's that's cinematic experience. Um, mm-hmm. And so like Rosemary's Baby um, is, you know, also an important one. I love weird, weird, like killer clowns from outer space. You know, that's, <laughs> I'm a fan as well. that's, a, that's a fun one. You know, uh, I like weird stuff like that. Um, uh, American Werewolf in London is really uh, important. Uh, that was really big for like um, special effects. That was one of the first times that it was a, it was a milestone or a mogul for, for, for special effects. Um, I get really freaked out uh, with possession stuff. I don't know why, but that's, that stuff really, you know, freaked me out um, growing up. So like the exorcist and oh, it's, you know, that stuff is hard for me to watch. Um, um, I do like, you know, so some of the, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be making somebody upset now, but one of my most, one of my favorite recent ones is Constantine, you know, whether you think that's a horror film or not, you know, um, I, you know, I, I just like it for, for various reasons. Um, uh, you know, Hereditary and Midsummer really messed me up. Um, Hereditary more than, more than Midsummer. I really thought that Midsummer was a, um, a fantastic art, art piece, um, but hereditary really messed me up. I was really affected, um, by that one, but, uh, cabin in the woods. I know these aren't old, but, oh, uh, I'm a big fan of cabin in the woods. Too. Yeah. <laughs> um, what else? Um, you know, I, it, as a kid, I never, I never was big into like the, you know, Friday the 13th, um, like the slasher franchises. I wasn't exposed to it that much, you know, so it wasn't a big part of my childhood. The first horror movie that I ever watched, I think I was like 13, was Pet Cemetery. That was scary. When you talk uh, about feeling of dread, to me, that's yeah. a movie that really captures that. It yeah. seems like it's the movie, like everyone in the movie's cursed right from the, the beginning yeah. of the film. Yeah, that and um, so I did a double feature. It was my first um, horror experience or the next one's not really a horror, but um, so it was Pet, C- Pet Cemetery and then Silence of the Lambs. And I was real messed up after that, you know. Um, and then I re- did, did you ever watch uh, Jacob's Ladder? Yeah. That's a great one. Mm-hmm. I was messed up too. That one, yeah. that one, that one is, is in that category. So anyways, that's yeah. you know, some, of, some of my thoughts. That's cool. Uh, Silence of the Lambs, uh, I always remember for this reason, is my mom wrote me a note that I could see it because I went to see yep. it with uh, with my friends who were all underage, but right. I, they didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think that, that uh, anybody knew that I was, that I was watching those, but. Yeah. I have to say. They know I, now. Uh, yeah, they do. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> now your parents will get, get, get revenge on you. <laughs> yeah. Well, my mom said to me, she was like, what? can you work on something that I can actually watch? <laughs> and uh, last year, I, last year I did um, the peanut butter Falcon. I was like, here you go, mom. Oh, that's an awesome movie. I actually didn't know you worked on that. Yeah. yeah. I'm also a big wrestling fan. So I was happy to, uh, uh, Jake the snake and Mick Foley in that. Yeah. 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 Good times. I have to say us was uh, one of my favorite uh, movie experiences in the theater of the last like uh, of modern time. I went to see it on oh. opening night and it was, 
it was sold out in Boston. And, uh, and, um, I remember as soon as you first see the, the kid who's kind of like walking all fours. And I remember someone in the crowd went, hell no. And everyone yeah. just started, yeah. it was a really fun experience. <laughs> that's, that's that. I love to hear that. Um, I did something, um, bold when, when, um, did you watch it in Dolby Atmos or did you just watch it in a 5.1? I'm not sure. I'm not positive what the sound. That's is. right. Yeah. That's right. The, the five point. I mean, the Dolby Atmos is a really. Um, it's a really beautiful mix. Um, uh, Ron Bartlett and Doug Hemphill, um, both amazing mixers, did a fantastic job. I feel very lucky to be able to work with those guys. They've do, done many films that you've watched um, and you've loved. Um, uh, so I did something with in that invasion moment when the Red family comes in, and I did something aggressive with the the banging on the door. Um, and I, 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 I probably was louder and more aggressive than, than people would have liked me to be just in any other experience. But every time those bangs happened on the door, when we were doing the, the, the playbacks in the final mixes, a new producer would, uh, you know, exclaim that they, they would have some profanity, you know, like, you know, I don't want to repeat it, but like yeah. every time they would swear. Yeah, um, and I knew, I was like, that's, that's good. We've done our, our job. So <laughs> yeah. it's fun to see those exp- um, um, uh, reactions to, to um, the work that you've done. I think that's, that is also appreciation. Yeah. I don't want to take like any magic away from the movie, but are there any hints, you know, like sound wise uh, throughout the movie of to like the, who Lupita's character really is or, you know, which family she is? No, no. I mean, most of the way that Lupita's uh, voice um, was mostly just her performance. We tried a bunch of things to like really, um, we tried to accentuate the idea of a broken larynx um, from her being choked earlier. And we did some really cool and weird things. I bought, we bought a, a, a ballistic gel head um, and cut it open, which we probably need therapy from, but we <laughs> cut it open and put a speaker inside of it to, you know, to reamp her dialogue to see if we could get something weird and cool. And um, it didn't work out. Um, so most of the, the, you know, what you experience about Lupita, you know, and her doppelganger is really from her performance and, you know, the, the filmmaking, the editing. So, uh, this might be more of a question for like the director. I don't know, but when you work on a series, do you, do you like approach it as like each one's an individual episode or is it like a 10 hour story arc? Depends on what what episode or what you know what series. I mean, it's like you know if you're working on a Mike Flanagan thing like a Haunting of Hill House or a Haunting of Blind Manor, that's like ten movies. You know, there's progression, there's consistency, um, there's idea you know ideas and concepts that start one place and then and then you know move to to another place and um, and then you have things like Atlanta season two. Um, which are little vignettes. They, you know, everything is very different. Um, all the design is, you know, very um, unique from from episode to episode, and so you have to kind of reinvent what you know what the experience is, you know, sonically from from episode to episode. So it really depends. Um, and I think that you know, one of the important things about about f- figuring out what that progression is, whether it's a progression of 10 movies or a progression of, uh, or, a, you know, individual vignettes is, you know, having trust in the team that you work with, both the filmmakers and your, the people that you work with on the sound side and the music side, because you kind of got to figure all that stuff out together. Um, I know that in the haunting of blind manor, um, you know, we mixed that thing during the pandemic. I was basically in this room that I have, you know, for, eight weeks or nine weeks or whatever it was, you know, connecting through the interwebs, uh, mixing remotely. Um, and we, we had to figure some things out together and, and we did that kind of through the process of, um, so working together is important, I guess is, 
uh, being trusting and being open to each other's views. Yeah. Well, when you said earlier about, you know, that you do all the, you work on all the sound except for like the score, I assume you'd have to work with the person that's doing the score. Yeah. So, so the sound, you know, doesn't, uh, What's up? This is James D. Lamont from It Came From The Flyweight Productions inviting you to listen to Culture Shock every second Monday right here on WithoutYourHead.com. Contrast yeah. with each other. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's exactly the point is it's like, you know, you have a relationship with the other components of this of this filmmaking team and if you have an ego about what you've built then you're going to lose you know that's the 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 art is going to suffer if you hold on to your ego what you need to do is be confident in ideas but also know when to kind of relinquish control or um be open to somebody else's ideas and working closely with the composer, working closely with the, the music editor. And I do that every time I have a close relationship with the music editors on my, my, my projects, especially with Mike Flanagan's project. Um, and we, you know, we work in tandem. It's like, Hey, you know, I think, I think this needs to be this here and this needs to be that there. And maybe we should, pull the sound effects down and go with music, or maybe we should really lean in on music, not having the ego, but really thinking about what Mike Flanagan's vision is and working together without that ego. It, it is very important because um, otherwise you're just going to, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to realize the vision if you're just, you know, having too much of a, an ego about what you've built. Mm-hmm. We all build cool stuff, but you gotta you gotta make it work for the story. Right, uh, Tristan. You have another question. I know other people, other sound people, uh, who also have a music background. So I'm wondering how integral a music background is in this sort of profession. I, I mean, I don't know if it's necessary, um, but it helps me because I I understand the relationship between sounds, and I know. When music needs to be in the forefront, I, you know, I'm not shy about wanting to uh, be, you know, sound effects being in more in front of the music. But I'm also not shy about knowing when music needs to be the, 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 the driver of this scene. And so it helps me. Um, and so, you know, if you have one more tool on your belt, then, you know... Uh, to understand the relationships between all the sounds is, is only going to help you. I think you mentioned, uh, you know, crickets and the clock. Is there anything that would be like, uh, you would say is like the most unusual sound you've used in a movie or, or TV show? Oh, that's a good question. Um, did you see Dr. Sleep? Yeah. So the, when the true knot dies, they're, bodies what they call what they call cycle um you know they phase in and out and of existence Mm -hmm. and um the visual effects went through many many stages of progression and we were really trying to figure out what the sound was of that and we tried a bunch of things like bones cracking and you know flesh moving and um Mike Flanagan um, had several conversations with me. You know, we did two or three different versions. He's like, it's cool, but it's not quite, it's like not unique. It's not iconic. I want it to be iconic. And I said, you know what I'm going to do, Mike? I'm going to record the sound of of me saying cycle, and that's going to be the sound. And then that's what I did. I actually recorded one of my uh, editors on stage. He has a nice deep voice and I recorded him saying cycle. And then I took it into one of the isotope programs and just manipulated it and turned it into this weird, phasey, you know, unique sounding. And when Mike heard it, he's like, that's it. I've never heard anything like that before. I was like, great. So that's pretty weird. Yeah, that's very weird. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, when you when you watch a movie that you've worked on, like uh, can you see it as the movie, or since you've probably seen it so many times, you know, yeah. uh, doing the sound? That's one of the that's one of the the toughest. Um, it's one of the toughest parts of the job is being able to retain perspective um, because you work on little pieces, but your job is really to understand it as a whole, um, and um, so. 
there are exercises to be, to be had to, to learn it. I mean, it is a skill in itself. And, you know, a lot of time is just like understanding when you need to walk away from something and then come back. So it's like you work on something all day today and you're like, all right, I've been li- watching and listening to this all day. I, I'm, you know, I can't tell anymore. I'm going to go to sleep and then I'm going to listen to it in the morning. We actually think about this in the final mix process of like, you know, watching a whole movie fresh and understanding, you know, the progression throughout, uh, throughout it. And so it's also about um, trusting in your teammates as well to, for their input, you know, um, because this is a, this is a struggle that a lot of filmmakers, sound people, editors, directors, producers, uh, they battle with this. This is a, this is a real thing. So there are exercises to do. Uh, and there are also, you know, there's trust to be had in your, your teammates. When you worked on Dr. Sleep, since it's a, it's both the sequel to an iconic film and also, uh, you know, the, the uh, film version of a, of a book. So uh, did you go back and watch the shining and, and incorporate anything from the shining, especially for like the overlook scenes, I guess. Yeah. Um, a lot of, the the really the DNA of The Shining. I mean, the Shining was originally a mono mix, um, and so a lot of the DNA is actually in the music. And so the the the, the Newton brothers um, incorporated a heartbeat that was kind of like the theme from the the original Shining into the music. Originally, when um, when we started talking about uh, doing Dr. Sleep, I was like, Oh, I get to build this cool heartbeat. It's every sound person's dream to actually put a heartbeat. In, you know, I don't know, it could be cliche, but like building something cool that has some, some iconic DNA. And so the music department got that. And I was like, well, all right, well, let me, let me just focus on some other things. Um, one of the coolest sounds in the, in the shining is that whole trike scene. Um, when, the, when, when the trike is, is um, moving through the overlick, and it's like the transition between uh, the 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 rug and the hardwood floors. It's just it's aggressive, and it, it's an iconic sound. And so, in the beginning beginning of Doctor Sleep, um, that's a part of it. Um, and so we kind of, we recorded. Um, one of my editors has a you know a four year old, so he's got a trike, and so we did some you know special recordings for that. Um, and then we did something really weird and cool where in the later part of the film, spoiler alert, when they go to a gun shootout, there's a moment where the, the first um, Danny's car goes from gravel onto, uh, you know, a, a, it's a concrete slab over to this like campground area. And then um, a camper from the True Knot does the same thing. We actually mixed the trike sound into that moment. Uh, going over the slab. So that's pretty cool. Um, other than that, you know, there's a lot of new sounds like the whole, the whole waking up the overlook sequence was one of my favorite things about the movie just to build. And it was very simple. It's some low groans and um, some light buzzing, um, but in a very articulate way. And that's something that's new. That's, it wasn't, you know, something that we had to build that didn't exist in, in the first one. Um, we also had to kind of figure out what the shining voice, um, you know, the shine voice feels like. And it was very simple back in the original, you know, just some reverb. And so we wanted to feel like it was traveling, you know, around you and come, you know, the thoughts coming into the brain. Um, and one of the, 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 the pieces, and this really didn't have much to do with me, but in the mix of uh, of the gold room, which is a very iconic moment from the you know the Shining film, um, in, in which was um, not necessarily reproduced, but duplicated or you know made its new its own thing. But in in Doctor Sleep and the space in in the room, the reverb of the room was was so prominent in the in the first. And, you know, in, in The Shining. And so we kind of built that same vibe in the mix of that moment when Danny is talking to Lloyd. Interesting. Uh, Trust, do you have another question? Is there anything that you're working on now or next that you're able to talk about? Well, I, I can tell you what I'm working on. I can't talk about it. Um, 
I, uh, I am working on a trilogy of movies um, that are going to be coming out. Netflix distribution. The trilogy of movies is based on um, the books, uh, a, a book series from R.L. Stein. R.L. Stein wrote Goosebumps, but he also wrote a, a series of books for an older crowd called Fear Street. And these movies are... Uh, you're familiar with that? No, I'm not familiar with that. Oh, so it's interesting. Yeah, they're fun. Um, uh, the movies are are really fun. They're uh, directed by Lee Jeniak, um, and we're working on it right now. And you'll get it, you know, when when we're finished. <laughs> that's all I can say. Yeah, but be on the lookout for it. They're very fun. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, do you have anything planned for Halloween? Uh, carving pumpkins in quarantine. <laughs> I don't know what, you know, like, um, it's a different experience this year, you know, important that we continue to be safe and take things seriously. It's my personal opinion. Um, and we're all um, in agreement here. And it's tough because this is a really fun time for people to kind of, you know, be out and together and getting, you know, I think you could, yeah, you could still do something fun. It just takes some creativity, I think. Yeah, most people yeah. are fixated on ho- don't cancel Halloween, but just not going door to door trick or treating doesn't mean it's canceled. Yeah. You know, you can do other things. There might be a backyard situation where we can have N95 masks underneath our Friday the Thirteenth mask, you know, yeah, or whatever. Um, right. um, so t- TBD, um, but uh, definitely gonna carve some weird pumpkins. Can do that. So. Very good. Yeah, I need to. I need to carve mine. My brother bought me a pumpkin this week, so I have to carve it. Yeah, yeah. Well, good, good, good luck on that. Uh, that sounds like <laughs> sounds like fun. Yeah, good luck on yours as well. Uh, thanks. <laughs> so, uh, Bly Manor's on uh, Netflix right now. Yeah, people can check it out. Yeah, and uh, all the other stuff you mentioned, besides the one that's not out yet, uh, you can get uh, on various uh, Amazon. Some of it's probably on Netflix. All the streaming sites. By the way, how would, how does that um, affect uh, your work with the rise of the streaming websites? Um, well, I mean, I think that the, you know filmmakers are potentially putting more stock into streaming, you know, as opposed to to, to theatrical release. This Fear Street series originally was going to be a theatrical, and they renegotiated, and I think it's a positive thing. It's kept us working. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an evolution in how people are, are consuming um, TV, you know, movies uh, specifically, and, and I think that we just kind of, like, need to listen to the ground, like, you know, listen to the evolution and, and um, not fight it because – we know what happens when you fight evolution. So, all right, you don't want to be a, be a blockbuster or something, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. The music industry fought it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, I love watching stuff online. I do miss the theater, but uh, right now, you know, it's not really happening. But hopefully, uh, at some time in the future, we can also have the theater back. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, maybe maybe there's a new new type of theater experience that's going to come out. I I know people are there are companies that are starting to rent out theaters to small groups, and I think that's a pretty cool idea. I would do that. Yeah, I saw that because uh, I live in Massachusetts, but I saw some of the, some of them doing it in Boston. It wasn't very much to rent the you know the whole theater out. Yeah, I don't know what you do, but yeah, and then there's the drive-ins too. There's the drive-ins. Yeah, <laughs> brings you back to being a kid. Huh. Yeah, that's great. I still, we, I've talked a lot about getting out to some, but I haven't yet. Um, yeah, I haven't either. I know Trista's done a couple. Fun. Yeah, I love the driving. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's its own experience, indeed. So. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, it's been really fun to talk with you. Yeah, I appreciate uh, the opportunity. It's it's always fun to talk about the stuff that we are passionate about. So I was going to say, you could really tell when you get into it that you're very passionate about your back work, which is good to see. That that is, that is also, uh, that is a compliment. So thank you. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, by the way, where can people follow you? If you'd like, if you'd like them to, um, I'm on Instagram, uh, at it's T gates. That's probably the best. And I think Twitter, which I'm not on so much, but I do look at it at, uh, it's Trevor Sound. So, um, 
maybe it should be the same thing. I don't know, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Work on it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. 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 And last question. I was wondering, yeah. uh, it, this may be a stupid question, I don't know, but like uh, in, in life or nature, if you hear like something, do you ever like jot it down? Like, Hey, that's an interesting sound. I want to remember that for, you know, the future. Yeah. I was, uh, in the desert last weekend and taking a hide, hike, um, in this desert oasis and found, uh, uh, uh myself at a, um, you know, a little waterfall and there were these great leaves. And so I like took out my phone and recorded it. It probably wasn't really? a proper, you know, recording device, but I got it anyways. And sometimes, man, I should have brought my recorder. I <laughs> you know, always, I always say I should have, would have, could have. Um, so. That's very cool though. What else? Then? All right. I'm always, always <laughs> listening though. <you> yeah. Know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Very good. That's been great. Cool. Thank great. you. Yep. Thank you very much. It's good to talk to you. I will. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. From ancient terrors to the search for modern day conspiracies, the tomb of Nick Cage is the new sound in horror rock. Uncover the mystery of old world horror for the new world order on iTunes, Amazon, and more. We should have listening. The Tomb of Nick Cage. They come at night, mostly. 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 Find out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Tomb of Nick Cage. They come at night. Hey. <laughs> Evening, John Dugan, your old grandpa from Texas Chainsaw Massacre here. I want to talk to you about something. Or fall off the porch. <laughs> um, I have, um, I'm an old guy. I have voted in uh, every election in the last 48 years. So it's like, what, 12 presidential elections. And uh, my first one was very important. It was Nixon against McGovern. And, of course, Nixon won. And uh, he won again. And then he was uh, shamed and run out of office and whatnot. You know, and then and it was a very important election. And then when... when uh, uh, Reagan ran very important. I thought the most important election of my life was to vote in that election, and of course he won. Yeah, and he, uh, God knows how many people were indicted in his administration, and he pretty much uh, architected. Uh, he was the architect of the destruction of the middle class, and then there was. Uh, couple others. There was Bush, who was just kind of a benign asshole, but he was also the former head of the CIA. So, you know, we elected, though I didn't, but uh, the, the public elected a professional liar <laughs> as president. Who the fuck <laughs> would elect the head of the CIA to president? And then, anyway, what I'm trying to say is a lot of these elections I voted in have been very, very important. You know, and, uh, you know, the kind of thing that changed the course of, uh, American history and the history of the world. And now, after 48, you know, in the 48th year that I'm voting for president, this is by far the most important election of my life since I've been of voting age. So, I just want to urge you all to get out there and vote. Get out there and vote. And I'm also going to tell you, if you don't vote and you don't like the way it turned out, whichever way, I better not hear a fucking peep out of you for the next four years about how the government's fucked up. Not one single word. 
Love y'all. Peace. Mask up. Keep your distance. Stay home if you can. And just be safe. Love you all.